0: Hello and welcome to the Big Idea Podcast from the University of Edinburgh. I'm Ed McCracken. We've made our annual bookish pilgrimage to the Edinburgh International Book Festival to meet the winners of the UK's oldest literary awards, the James Tate Black Prizes, which are awarded annually by the University. You join us the morning after, the night before. Last night, two fantastic books were honoured. One, a modernist masterpiece set in the bedsits and fraught headspaces of 1990s London. The other, a centuries-hopping tale of a lost masterpiece, the man who painted it, and the man it destroyed. Emer McBride won the James Tate Black Prize for Fiction for her novel, The Lesser Bohemians. And the James Tate Black Prize for Biography was given to Laura Cumming for her book, The Vanishing Man. Now, Emery McBride is unable to join us this morning. She's had to dash down south, but we spoke to her last night and we'll hear that interview later in the podcast. But we do have two of the judges with us today. They are Dr. Jonathan Wilde and Dr. Alex Laurie. And most importantly, we have the winner of the Biography Prize, Laura Cumming. So uh, thanks for joining us. And Laura, first of all, congratulations. How are you feeling this morning?
1: I'm completely elated. Um, I'm an Edinburgh girl and uh, this square, Charlotte Square, where we are right now, means a great deal to me. It's where I used to go to get my teeth filled uh, and my bus pass for the number 23 bus to go to school. And it had never before been uh, a square much associated with delight. But I am completely thrilled uh, to have been awarded this prize and very honoured and grateful. Very
0: good. Great. Uh, And... I think the best place to start is obviously kind of talking it gives a pitch of what the book is about I mean it won the biography prize but it's not really a conventional biography in that it could be about one of two men it could even be about a painting so it could. So I mean, how did you actually pitch this to the publisher?
1: Yes and indeed you make a very good point there and I'm very um, delighted and grateful that the judges were so generous with their definition of a biography because in a sense it isn't not really a, bi- a biography in, in the straight linear sense at all um, it follows the story of a Um, a man who's described in the lawsuits that will follow and which were very much the pivot of the book which take place also here in Edinburgh, uh, a a tradesman. He calls himself uh, an autodidact tradesman. He's a man from Reading uh, in the middle of the 19th century and he is a man who loves art. He runs a bookshop Um, But he never gets to see painting because there are no museums. The the National Gallery has just started, but he is a poor man, uh, very unlikely to get up and down to London very much. He wants to see paintings, and so he does what people do in those days, which is to go to auctions, where paintings are very briefly visible before they disappear into the darkness of country houses again. Most auctions would have two viewing days, and he goes to one in the knowledge that there may be, if he's very lucky, a painting there by Van Dyck. He gets to the auction, sees this kind of dirt blackened rectangle hanging on the wall that is clearly the portrait of Prince Charles before he becomes Charles I of England, that he's hoping to see, a kind of, you know, muggy oval of, of face and a lot of blackness around it. And he has a, an instinct and I think a very fine and remarkable instinct, that this painting may not be just your classic Van Dyck. There are Van Dykes everywhere in Britain, as you know, um, and there are thousands of copies of Van Dycks, and they just go on to infinity. But this one somehow attracts him as being different. So he sneaks, and I, this is one of the things I love about him, he sneaks into the conservatory, borrows a, li- a ladder when no-one's looking, holds it up in front of the painting, gets up there and does what, in fact, auctioneers still do now, which is to lick his fingers and wet the painting and around the face and he sees what he thinks is a kind of translucence there that isn't really associated with the very glassy um, enameled sharpness of a Van Dyke and he thinks surely it can't be a Velazquez but there was a portrait painted of Charles I, future Charles I in Madrid in 1623 by Velazquez, two men very young, the painter They meet for, by my calculation, three hours on a hot August day in Madrid, and this painting is created. Is it the painting? The rest of the book follows his story as he tries to prove, without the use of forensic science and dendrology and pigment analysis and so on that we have today, that it is a Velazquez. I'm following him, but we are both also following our passion for Velazquez, so we are rather united in that respect.
0: Very good. Jonathan, I've got two tasks for you. Can you uh, very briefly uh, give us an explanation of why this won the prize? And secondly, in the course of your description of why it won, you've got to really try and make Laura blush. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, 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 I'm sure I, I, I attempted to do that last night. I'm not sure with what success, but um, I mean, I described the book as a gem of a book, and it, and it really is. It, it, you know, we read hundreds of books uh, come uh, past our eyes. The student judges always managed to find extraordinary things that we weren't looking for, or we'd missed the reviews of. And this book appeared from the pile with a stunning review from our student reader. Um, And I began to read it, and it was extraordinary. You know, I I had no particular interest in Velasquez. It was, you know, it seemed an an intriguing story about the the bookseller. But it's absolutely extraordinary, almost kind of magical, the way in which Laura's managed to to, to bring the two vanishing men, the two vanishing men here, um, into focus. And the relationship between the two means that you you really can't have one story without the other. Sometimes when you see these double biographies, you think, you know, a publisher has said, you you can't write the biography of that unknown person. You know, we'll have to add in a famous name, because that's the way to sell it. So you're always a bit suspicious when you see books like that. Um, but in this case, you know that couldn't have been further from the truth. These two men, John Snare Velasquez, you know, lived in different worlds at different times. But the way in which Laura manages to sort of bring them together um, is, is 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 quite a remarkable thing. I mean, structurally, perhaps we'll talk about the structure of the book as well, um, which. You, it, it shouldn't come off as well as it does. I was kind of marveling as I was reading how well that happens. It, there's some, something quite extraordinary about the, 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 the way in which these two biographies kind of are interlinked and interlocked?
0: I think that's a slightly rosy tinge on the on the brow. Yeah, we'll oh, take so. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, now, Laura, I mean, you describe it uh, elsewhere as being actually quite a detective story as well. You know, there's a lot of kind of having to go in search of both John Snare and Velázquez. Um, can you describe where actually it physically took you in terms of researching this book?
1: Well, I can. And of course, where it took me is here, yet again, my own home city. Uh, he takes this painting to London, to old Bond Street in London, where he shows it. And the whole kind of Republic of newspapers come to look at this painting and they all agree this is the great Velasquez, which I should point out, um, Jonathan has very rightly alluded to the two vanishing men. There were actually three because the painting itself, a portrait of a man, had vanished. It is a missing painting, it had been a, a long sought after this painting and lots of people thought that they had found this painting and perhaps this painting has been found, so we'll come to that. But um, he shows this in London and it's a huge success and um, at that point he starts to think he'll take it on a tour and in the 18, 1850s paintings were very much like movies, so you took them around, you took a single painting, beautifully gas lit, um, Probably quite mysteriously, people paid a you know a penny or a shilling to to see it and and to walk past it and witness its beauty and so on. And the first stop on his tour was Edinburgh, and he brought it to Edinburgh to Prince's Street, um, in those days a very, very different um, street. And uh, he he took a room in a salon in a hotel, roughly I think the building's gone now, but I think roughly next to Jenner's, and. Um, He was showing it there, uh, and it was going very, very well, and the Scottish press had loved it, and, you know, it was the first Velasquez in Scotland. One snowy afternoon, January, dark, dark is falling, around about 3pm, two sheriff officers, these are sort of hired uh, policemen, came and confiscated the painting, dragged it up the mound, down into the lawn market where it was locked in a police cell. Um, and then became a huge battle, and the huge battle was between this little man from south of the Tweed, as he's described in the court case, and the total might of the Scottish establishment on behalf of the Earls of Fife, who claim that this painting really belongs to them, and that they've somehow mislaid it when they don't know, and from which of their many houses they don't know, but somehow it's gone, and he has to defend himself against them. So my next port of call uh, was to Edinburgh, my, again, you know, to, to come home and see my family and see what I could find out. And the transcripts of that trial are in the National Library of Scotland on George the Fourth Bridge. Hooray, that great, great institution where I did my higher research and so on at school. And there it all was. And, you know, a woman said to me, oh, yes, we've got that, you know, produced it instantly. White gloves, you know, special collections. And I saw it there and was very moved by it. And, um, I mean, there is a class wars theme a little bit to this book, I suppose, because I am trying to say all the way through it that every human being has the right to look at art and judge it as they wish to judge it. Um, I'm I'm an art critic. I'm not an art historian. I'm not a scholar, as my colleagues here are, Um, but I do have a sort of case against art historians in the book because I think they want you to look at paintings in a very specific way and I don't want people to feel that they have to do that. I'm quite kind of (laughs) fanatical about this and uh, so my man is, in a way, an emblematic figure for me of the right to look at a painting and judge it as you wish to judge it and I think he's right in his evaluation, in fact.
2: As I mentioned earlier on, as Laura mentioned, that we have here... Three vanishing men, but we have two very distinct periods. We have two very distinct worlds. And so, what I wanted to ask you, Laura, was how how did you kind of come to the structure of it? You've got great story to tell, but you know, you sit down, and, and did it take a long time to work out how you were going to? Of sort the chapters out, how you're going to work the sort of interlinkages between your two. It
1: did, Jonathan, and in fact, my mother is a weaver, and um, I was brought up with the idea of warps and wefts. And you know, we talk about warps and wefts in English literature all the time, and you know, the greatness of the fairy queen it's warp and weft, and so on. And um, actually, the plotting of this book was I did it with strips of paper, Mm -hmm. and I did them actually as a warp and a weft because I wanted to see what the joint points were between he's in. You know Bond Street, and this is happening, and you know, and then Velasquez is over here, and he's in the, he's just got the job at the palace. And how am I going to make them um, merge together? And I did wonder. I mean, it's no secret that I wanted to write a book about Velasquez. It's a completely campaigning book. I want everybody to go to the Prado. I want everyone to stop looking at the Mona Lisa. I want everyone to go and see Las Meninas, surely the greatest of all paintings. So I do have this kind of huge um, drive in the book to that. And I am very grateful to John Snare because I know no publisher would have allowed me to write that book if it hadn't been carried in a kind of detective story, as you say. But actually, the curious thing to me in the end was that it, it, it did work out in chronologies. So John Snare would be striving at this point and Velasquez would be striving at this point And they vanish, both men vanish. I mean, literally, we do not know where Velasquez's remains are. Nobody has ever been able to find them. They disappeared in the Napoleonic Wars, probably the bombing of a, a great church in Madrid. So he's gone, and John Snare, I thought, did vanish. And indeed, when I when the paperback came out, it was only when the paperback of this book came out in January this year that I was able to establish what happened to him. When I wrote The Hardback, I still didn't know where he had gone. In fact, he ends up in a kind of cold-water tenement in gangs of New York days in um, the 1880s by then when he dies in in Manhattan, but I didn't know what had happened to him either. And of course, the other vanishing man is the painting. And my great terror, I will candidly tell you, was that the painting, which does also disappear, might show up somewhere unexpected during the course of my research. And without wishing to give this away, um, there is a huge case of mistaken identity about the painting in the court trial. Um, and there are two paintings. Uh, so that's the, but I didn't know that until the, really about the week before the manuscript was finished. So, um, so in a way, sort of fate shaped it.
2: That's the daunting thing, isn't it, with writing a book like that, because you're, you're always one email away from something that is
3: <laughs> <blow> unravelling <laughs> your weaving,
1: quite consistently. Exactly.
0: But exactly. <laughs> that will be actually incredibly exciting? To kind of to Ah. this this lost kind of masterpiece to reappear, and you're the person who is on the cusp of publishing a book about the search for it.
1: Well, um, I I should say that since the publication of the hardback as a book, um, um, I have had a lot of mail, and so (laughs) and I and with mounting dread these letters arrive, and I think God, you know, green ink on the (laughs) envelope, and sometimes they arrive with a very beautiful handwriting, and I think, oh no, this is it, this is it, (laughs) I'm going to discover what happened to one of the two mm-hmm. paintings um, I can tell you that one of the two paintings is in Hollywood and that really staggered me I had no idea that that was its destination but in fact a Hollywood producer owns it mm-hmm. and I'm not even allowed to know his name but I think I've narrowed it down <laughs> um, and uh, so y- y- yes it might do, it might seem to be that you know what you're after is the, is the painting, cash in the attic you know. yeah. but mm-hmm. um, actually for me that wasn't the thing I was after the thing I was after was Velasquez. Um, I want him to remain mysterious, I mean, in a way it's a bit like Shakespeare to me, I don't really want him to be real at all, almost. Um, and a fine mystery, Dickens' great phrase for Shakespeare, I've let him remain a fine mystery. Um, and on the other hand, I did want to find John Snare, and the great marvellous thing that came after the book was um, a very, very elderly and charming um, uh, book expert antiquarian um, rang me up and said, "I think I've got something you need to come and see." And I went to his house in Putney, and on the table was this beautifully handmade notebook. Um, and in it, it's it's John Snares' notebook. And I had never come anywhere close to finding him at all. And when I found this thing, I mean, I'm afraid I've actually ruined the ink because I <laughs> cried on it. <laughs> I was so amazed to see his handwriting.
0: No, no, not one to give too much away in terms of how it finishes, but you know. Mild spoiler alert, Um, John Snare's almost obsession with his painting does destroy a lot of his life, finances, family life, um, all over the love of a painting. As somebody whose profession is essentially to appreciate and enjoy and explain that enjoyment to other folks about art, Can you understand part of that obsession?
1: Well, the book opens with my obsession, which is with Las Meninas, the great painting in the Prado of the Royal Family that includes the portrait of the artist. Again, a class war painting for me somewhat because it is actually all the workers. Uh, The painting shows all the workers famously. Um, And I am very obsessed with that painting because that painting has given me so much comfort in my life. But I don't have his... I don't have his um, acquisitiveness. I don't collect anything and I don't want to own anything ever. And he wants to have this thing to have and to hold. I mean, he, it's more important to him than his family in the end. And, and it's there with him. By my calculation, for about 45 years, he lives in the same room as this painting. So it, it's, um, it's a, not a painting, it's a person to him. Um, I think, of course, that he goes insane. Really, I think the painting drives him mad, so his, his feeling for Velasquez is tragic and mine is full of joy.
2: It's never about the money, is it? Because you think, you know, nowadays a, a painting turns up on the Antiques Roadshed, you know, the, figure, the figures are talked about, but what's fascinating is that it's never about the money, it seems to be some kind of relationship. That's the only way you can describe it, isn't it? It becomes a person and it, he, he becomes kind of drawn to it in such a, a way. And I, you know, almost the most fascinating thing about the book was its tale of obsession. How an ordinary person, tradesman going along happily in Reading, selling sealing wax and string, suddenly gets this overmastering obsession. And you know, it seems to us, it seems almost kind of impossible to understand that. But you know, I thought that sense of of, of, of John Snare becoming absolutely. You know, take, it takes over his life and everything he kind of loses everything and I wondered what you ended up feeling, Laura, about that relationship with the painting I mean that, that level of obsession is it velasquez is, is that why is that you know, could it have been could Rembrandt have done that? Is there something about Velasquez who um, <clears> did that Well
1: I think there is for me something about velasquez um, i mean i am I, you know, I'm obsessed with. It. I can't really say i 'm obsessed with velasquez, too. Um, I think that his paintings are i mean quite apart from being transcendently great works of painting. Um, my feeling about them is that they they show this moment you know uh, in which the figure that you 're looking at is almost not quite there and is just hanging within the paint on this two dimensional surface, just hanging um, between existing and not not existing. So for me, they're all about mortality and they're all about um, um, the possibility of dis- dissolution, really. Um, and I feel very strongly that Velazquez was a terrific humanitarian. I mean, people do say... Common, commonly, do say that Rembrandt is Shakespeare. We always have to have these analogies for artists, and and, and why not? You know, I think mm-hmm. it's marvellous that artists are compared with writers. Um, for me, obviously, I think Velázquez is Shakespeare, and I'm damned if Rembrandt's getting <laughs> that role. You know, um, it's, it's all his paintings are giving the greatest respect and empathy and nuance to. The subjects, the people he paints, the the dwarves at the court and the staff of the court and so on, the very lowly people, gatekeepers and uh, performers and so on. And of course, I would have loved more than anything to have known how Velazquez would have painted John (laughs) (laughs) Snare.
2: What I haven't said enough is is how brilliantly you write about Velazquez. I mentioned last night that, you know, I'd, I'd looked at the... But the painting, the Velasquez in in the National Gallery uh, here, on the mound, many times I'd never really looked at it until I read your work, and then I I kind of I I went to to look at it, and it was that that was really helpful, I think, in helping me to understand how extraordinary Velasquez is, and and and, and what he might do to somebody who you know whose work came into to his hands, as as it happened with John Snare. But you know, you write so brilliantly and so sort of luminously about the picture. And it, it, it's never about kind of canvas and paint and pigment. Um, do you feel that, you know, nowadays somebody found what they thought was of Alaska, it would go straight under the microscopes and the, the, it has, has something of the kind of romance of, 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 of kind of painting uh, disappeared with this forensic? You know, we're always kind of first, the first thing we do is go to the kind of forensic examination. Um, <laughs> And not necessarily let our eyes do the work. What
1: a fascinating question! Um, in the book, uh, there is a, a, three more paintings were just dis- while well, I was writing this book, three more paintings by Velázquez were discovered. He painted approximately it's thought about one hundred and twenty pictures. So for three more to have turned up, and one more turned up last week. Hmm. So you know, there's something mysterious about them that they need to be discovered in this way. And um, the great moment, <clears throat> the great moment in New York where. A painting, a painting by Velasquez a portrait which had been in the Metropolitan Museum for almost a hundred years, is being cleaned, and it was being cleaned by night by a conservator, a great conservator from Edinburgh, always from Edinburgh, <laughs> um, Michael Gallagher, and, and he's, it's a real kind of museum by night story because he's there and it's midnight on New Year's you know, and he's washing very delicately with some water to the face, and it, he says it was like looking into the bottom of a murky pond. And then up came something very, very luminous. And he had the absolute, kind of, you know, the hair stood on the back of his neck and he knew immediately it was a Velazquez. And the thing that he he identified when he, when he talks about this, which he does beautifully, was a glimmer that is, in his description, somewhere between magical and metaphysical. And I think when you speak of the of painting with Velazquez, they can clean, they can x-ray, they can, you know, they can do all of that, but in the end the identifying characteristic is always because he didn't sign it or date his paintings is always that element which is unquantifiable and we have to trust our eyes to see it.
2: What next? How, how do you top a book like this?
1: <laughs> it's very kind of you to ask that question. I thought that was probably the last book I would ever write. And then it, and it occurred to me that there were, you have touched very kindly on the common man theme and I found more and more that that was what I am really interested in and um, I wanted, I've always wanted to write about my parents my parents were artists here in Edinburgh at the art college and my mother had a very strange upbringing and uh, she was kidnapped as a child and it wasn't obvious who had kidnapped her for a very long time and I have only ever had a sequence of photographs from her life after the kidnap and so she appears to have no images before the age of three and a half. And then I have, for, by quite strange means, I have discovered a cache of images of her earlier than that by a different set of people. Wow.
2: Oh, <laughs> If your appetite's not wetted now, it's never going to be, is it really? It's a shame you can't win this prize twice. You're a very hot contender. That's so with that kind, product. that's so <laughs> kind. Well, uh, thank you very
0: much for that, Laura, that was great. Um, uh, that's the end of part one the Big Idea podcast. Stay with us for part two coming right up. Welcome back to part two of the Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh. Um, This uh, podcast is obviously all about the James T. Black prizes Uh, and now we're going to talk about the the winner for the Fiction Prize and that was Emer McBride's Lesser Bohemians. And Alex, you were kind of the the lead judge in the fiction side of things. Can you give us a, a brief overview of what the book's about
4: and also why it won? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The novel concerns um, an 18-year-old drama student, an Irish um, 18-year-old. She's come to London for the first time in order to attend um, drama school. And she um, encounters a a sort of handsome actor, 20 years her senior, in a pub in Camden. And the two get very drunk, they're flirting all night, and they go back to his, what turns out to be a bed-sit. And what seems at first to be a sort of one-off encounter, um, an opportunity for her to sort of throw off her virginity as quickly as possible, actually turns into something much more serious when the two meet again by chance um, at the theatre. They're seeing the same play. And what then happens is they're very affectionate towards each other, they're very fond of each other, and it turns into a sort of spiralling love story between the two as the two um, find various ways to um, hurt each other, betray each other, break things off, start again, and really exchange some quite... Dark secrets about their past because about um, halfway through there is a 70 page, it's not monologue, it's not Stephen's um, words necessarily. We hear them because Eileen sort of, um, we're inside our head. And he um, really tells this deeply sort of traumatic life story to her. And it's variously described as either the long night, this 70 page section, or as Eileen describes it, last night's rendered hell when he explains exactly what's gone on in his past. And what's so intriguing about it is the sort of um, the similarities there are with her own past experience, because I think their experiences and their lives exist on a sort of continuum, in a way, and they mirror each other in really, really um, intriguing ways. So that's kind of a sort of brief overview of, of what the novel looks yeah. at.
0: And so, yeah, what what what's kind of uh, nudged it ahead of the other contenders in the shortlist?
4: I think so, it's... The most striking thing about it and the thing you're going to notice first is the style and it's so extraordinary. Um, it's written in this sort of what I'm, uh, Ian McBride it describes as a stream of existence whereby words, thoughts, actions and narrative commentary are all pushed together in the same sentence um, blurring freely into each other without obstruction. And there are sentences are left um, incomplete to reflect unspoken thoughts and fragments of conversations. There are also, literally on the page, there are actual kind of blanks between words um, to suggest sort of awkward hesitations. Um, Sometimes the font is a little bit smaller where Eily is sort of thinking to herself so again it's sort of these unspoken thoughts these directives she gives to herself of of how to behave but I think it's that that extraordinary sort of it's stream of existence rather than stream of consciousness because I suppose there are, there are bodies in there as well um, but it's just the style is so extraordinary but it also it, what's, Brilliant about it is, it's not difficult, and within one or two pages, you are absolutely on board with the way it's written. So it's 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 in no way difficult in that way, and it's beautifully done. I actually heard Emma read from it yesterday morning, and it's extraordinary. It feels like sort of poetry in a way. Very good.
0: Now, obviously, Emma Bride uh, sadly uh, was unable to make it uh, this morning for the podcast, but we did catch up with her last night after the ceremony. And here's what she had to say.
3: I have to say, to be this year's winner is a huge surprise for me and an absolute pleasure. I thought it was an incredible shortlist, really strong, very literary. A lot of the writing is very beautiful, and so to be chosen as the winner is just a huge, huge honour for me.
1: I've
3: I've been in up in Edinburgh since last night. I went to see some shows and caught up with some actor friends and who are not necessarily very much involved in the literary world, but asked me what the James Tate Prize was like. And, and so my idea of it is, you know, it's a bit like being an actor, maybe in New York in 1977, and, you know, Al Pacino comes up backstage after your, your show and taps you on the shoulder and goes, hey, you're a great actor man. <laughs> that is, that's basically the level of, of, of sort of professional honour and delight that comes with winning the James Tate Black. Essentially, *The Lesser Bohemians* is a love story. It's a, a story about an eighteen-year-old Irish girl who comes to London in 1994 and meets uh, an actor who's who's twenty years her senior, and and they begin what they think is a, is a, a casual affair, which eventually becomes a very intense love affair. And it's a it's a book about love. It's a book about how we understand ourselves, how we communicate what we understand about ourselves and, and what we do when we discover things about ourselves that we didn't know that we already knew. It is very much a love letter to London and to that London that I knew as a young drama student in 1994 and that was a very deliberate choice on my part to, to create a very human emotional ballast. Um, that the the events of the book could be played out against and, and so the London of, of the Lesser Bohemians is um, is the London very much of my memory and it's not necessarily uh, historically accurate but it is absolutely the London of my memory. The Lesser Bohemians uh, really refers to well it's a number of things. First because the book is set in Camden Town in 1994 which was obviously part of a very celebrated um, Bohemian scene at that time, especially with, with musicians, um, I wanted to write about other people who, who were not necessarily living their lives out across the, the, uh, the front pages of the Red Tops, but people who were engaged with, with art and, and trying to live their lives in a meaningful way and do jobs that were meaningful to them but were not necessarily being celebrated and lionised for that uh, in the in the papers, and also because it's a book about drama students, um, who no one's ever going to say they're greater bohemians, are they? <laughs> how,
1: how important is the style, and how, could you tell us a little bit about how, how that kind of developed?
3: Well, I mean, the, the style of the book is also essential to the story, because for me as a writer, what I'm interested in is not long, agonised descriptions of events from the exterior, but really what it's like to live a life um, and so the style is very much about trying to put the reader inside the experience at the moment that is being experienced before it's being processed before it's being intellectualized and so the writing is trying to reflect that almost gut reaction to life and to the joy of that and to the pain of that.
0: That was Amy McBride talking uh, after winning the James State Black Prize for Fiction last night at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, Now, Alex, I mean, you talk there actually about the style and about, you know, it is definitely the first thing that kind of just hits you right between the eyes whenever you first open it. And it, you know, it does take a couple of pages to kind of almost like tune in or kind of focus uh, uh, on, on what's actually kind of going on. but. What does that kind of style? I mean, people have described it as like James Joyce, quite modernist style. Mm. What are those kind of fragment, fragmentary kind of sentences? What do they do, which like a fully rendered, complete kind of traditional sentence can't do?
4: Um, I think there are several significant advantages to this style, but one in particular is the immediacy we get of Eilidh's mind. Um, we are we really inhabit her mind. We see things because she does, we experience them because she does. Nothing that happens in the novel is beyond her realm of um, experience or perception. And I think it's intriguing that we get inside her mind in particular because she is so eager and optimistic and desperate to be in touch with London. Um, She submits totally to this new city and to the new experiences that it can both offer and accommodate. So there's a kind of freewheeling style that I think really um, reflects her own attitude. I mean, she says, for instance, um, here's to what London brings. Goodbye to the life I've left behind. Um, you know, she says, my rule when offered is to partake. And she certainly does. So she she will have sex with you know, any number of different people. She will drink an awful lot. She says, I'm drunker than I know how to be. She'll take drugs. I and mean, She's living with new people for the first time. She's away from home. But it's this absolute eagerness to um, submit to the new experiences and because we're inside her mind we almost experience them with her so I think that's what's so striking about it, it's really because it's her um, and she's a really sort of optimistic, she's she's naive because she's 18 years old and away from home for the first time but she's certainly not unintelligent there's a real sort of openness about her which I think is um, really um, it lends itself to the style mm.
0: We obviously have that kind of sense of immediacy in terms of the style, the real kind of sense of an interior life and kind of thought and action process but also I kind of got a real sense of the exterior as well I mean and London being a real place and you can almost smell the kind of stale beer and kind of cigarette smoke at the bed sets and the kind of indie music of kind of you know early mid 90s -hmm. I mean could it have taken place
4: anywhere else apart from London? I don't think it could it's been described as a love letter to London um, but it's a particular part of London it's northwest London it's Camden Town um, in the early to mid 90s, it's set between July 1994 and September uh, September 1994 and July 1995. But it's it's the streets and the shops and the pubs in particular and bedsits and the parks. But it's what's very curious about it is it's not Joycean in that way and it's not the sense in which he might be able to um, reimaginatively, you know, or imaginatively remap, I should say, the city were it to burn down. It's it's a very tactile, sensory-driven version of London. Um, Stephen says to her at one point, she's going away for Easter holiday. She's going to come back to London for the summer term, and he says to her at one point, "You will absolutely love London in the summer because of the heat of the streets and the smell of the trees." So it's not so much that exact pub was there and they're walking down that particular road. It's it's a very tactile, sensory-driven version of it, and so it's 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 not the specifics. It's very much about um, it's a subjective version of the city, I think, to my yeah. mind. And
0: you say like a love letter. It's a very particular kind of love letter. You know, it's very, it's a very intense mm. book, mm. and you know the the promise and even the threat of sex is never far away from <laughs> any any page. You know, it's very much front and center. You know, sex is a very hard thing to kind of write about in a way which isn't just screaming out to kind of win the bad sex award. Um, from your perspective, how did Eamon Bride kind of do that in a way which didn't kind of um,
4: stumble into cliche, into kind of dead language? I don't know if it's conscious or not, but she certainly does avoid cliche in that way. And I, spoke it, I suppose it's the the fragments of sentences that really get kind of get you to the heart of it. Um, but also, I mean, she said before that you know, sex is one of those situations where words don't need to be spoken. You know, you don't need to speak at that point. But I think there is also, you know, there is a lot of sex in it, but it's not gratuitous. And I think it's there because of character development. Um, you know, people are very much exposed in all senses of the word when they're having sex but it's a very intimate version of the character so I think it's it's there because it lends itself to character development rather than being there because she has a lot of sex it's because that's when we get really in touch with what's going on in her head at those particular moments but I think she those fragments um, those fragmented sentences I think really do lend themselves to um, the exploration of sex in the novel and it's yeah it's certainly not at risk of winning any bad sex award just because it's, it's a very sort of intimate version of it
0: well, I think um, this is the first year they're running alongside the GMC at Black Awards we've been running a MOOC yeah. It's a massive open online course uh, called How to Read a Novel that's right yeah yeah can you tell us a wee bit about that and what's what's been happening
4: um, yeah we, I mean, we've got a lot of people signed up we've got about over twelve thousand people so far signed up for it And it's a four-week course and what we've done is we've picked the main building blocks as we perceive them of, of fiction so we've got plot um, dialogue characterization and setting and what we've done is we've explored these building blocks um, over four weeks And we've taken a lot of examples from classic texts in order to um, describe these strategies and techniques. But we've also used as our key example each week one of the four shortlisted novels. Um, So Eamon Bride's um, novel was used in order to explore the dynamics of dialogue. Um, So that was the the week three text. So, yeah, it's been a really intriguing experiment. Actually, we are um, going to run it again next year. The way in which these four novels, uh, the kind of the strategies they use, I think really show off these age-old techniques. Um, And it's a kind of I think it's quite a fresh approach to reading because it, you know, does encourage and. yeah, allow people to read much more contemporary fiction. Um, so we didn't want to just use dusty old examples. We really wanted to kind of get to fresh new fiction in that way.
0: And how how can people access it? How can people sign up if they're interested in maybe doing it next year?
4: Um, yeah, it's on the FutureLearn platform, um, and there is a hashtag um, FL novel, FutureLearn novel. Um, and I mean it's called How to Read a Novelist it's it's very easy to find on the internet and it's completely free as well if you sign up now you'll have access until mid-September but we're running this same iteration of the course um, over Christmas, January so there's still time to access it if you you kind of come to this version of it late Well
0: that brings us to the end of this edition of the Big Idea Podcast it just leaves me to thank you for listening and to thank today's guests that's Dr Jonathan Wilde, Dr Alex Laurie and of course Laura Cumming Join us again next time for another Big Idea podcast from the University of Edinburgh.